Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. This week we're celebrating the 12 scientific days of Christmas. From people who go swimming in frozen lakes to whether the booze can kill the bugs in your eggnog. I'm Chris Smith. And I'm Greg Jackson. And this is the Naked Scientist's Christmas special. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, with us this week are biochemist James Bowers. So, James, what's the best gift you've ever had for Christmas? The best present. It's a little bit kind of like, it's a little bit obvious maybe and a little bit kind of cliche, but I was living abroad for quite a few years and um, the best Christmas present I got was somebody actually bought me a plane flight home uh, to be home for Christmas. Obviously wanted to see you. actually like, (laughs) yeah, it was the nicest thing uh, and it really made my year. What a lovely present. (laughs) I wish I got presents like that. Uh, Eleanor Drinkwater is a bird expert, so he's had a wonderful experience. Have you got any bad ones to tell us about? Uh, Well, actually, at home I have a cocker spaniel and I'd say probably the worst present came from her in that she On the kitchen floor? uh, No, not quite. Um, she has a real love for finding half-rotted seabirds and presenting to them to me with much love. But unfortunately, I don't quite share her enthusiasm for rotten birds. Oh dear, so you got a rotten bird for Christmas? Yeah, it was very unfortunate. Good job it wasn't a turkey. <laughs> no, not for the turkey. <laughs> Hugh Hunt is an engineer at Cambridge University. Any Christmas disasters to impart? Well, I seem to specialise in Christmas disasters, but putting a four-litre wine box in the microwave oven to make mulled wine. And of course that... Uh, <laughs> That plast- metalised plastic bladder shrunk to nothing in a, in a couple of seconds. And uh, I could see the wine behind the uh, the door of the microwave. I, I shouldn't have opened the door as quickly as I did. Because, and? Well, it was... <laughs> it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. Did we it taste just, good, though? We should have just got straws and slurped up the wine oh. off the kitchen floor. <laughs> Well, we would have, would have done in our house. Thank you, Hugh. Uh, also, Amy Thomas is with us from Imperial College London. You're a psychologist. What about you? Any Christmas stories? Yeah. Um, my brother, for weeks and weeks last year, picked up this present he was going to give me. It was going to be the best present. It was a huge box, wrapped up, everything. I was super excited. Open it up, and he's uh, put an old shoe inside a box for me. Why? So. I, it's, it's a running joke in our family, but every year it fools me, every year. <laughs> Have you ever done that thing where you, you wrap up something tiny, but you put it in a huge box and then you put a slightly smaller box inside the big box and you think <laughs> someone thinks they're going to get a massive present? Because there must be a psychology to that, Amy. Yeah. Presumably you think you're getting something enormous I and in fact it's it's not that special. You, you get really disappointed. Surprisingly, every time you're super disappointed. <laughs> also with us is physicist Alan Calvert. Have you had any Christmas catastrophes, Alan? Well, I've got enough grandchildren that we usually spend at least one day in A&E every Christmas. Um, but the best one so far was two years ago. My partner was actually bitten by a, a black widow spider. And this Not is in the, Cambridge. Yes, this is the first and only recorded <laughs> black widow spider bite in Cambridge. How? <laughs> 
Oh, uh, we we brought some. Where stuff did you get it? Where did you buy it? We brought it specially from the USA. <laughs> <laughs> We've had some stuff in in storage for a couple of years, and it just arrived with this extra passenger. Oh my goodness! And um, was your partner okay? Oh yes, eventually. <laughs> so where where did it buy her? On the thumb as she was unpacking books. Oh my goodness! What was it like? Um. Well, it, I don't mean it, the spider, I mean the, the effect on the... We never actually saw the spider. We managed to identify the bite from the shape and the way that her thumb swelled up. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Greya, can you beat that? Um, <laughs> no, not. I can't. I'm actually kind of worried that this spider is running around your house still. Um, no, actually, in the Jackson household, we have disaster after disaster every year. And our favourite story is the year when all my cousins and aunties and uncles came over from the States and uh, we were all arguing about who was going to cook this massive turkey. There's about 30 of us when we all get together. Anyway, my uncle glasses, he won it out. He was going to cook it and he slathered it all in marmalade, put it in at one o'clock on Christmas Eve, 1am that is. We all woke up in the night and went, oh, it smells like burnt marmalade. Went back to sleep. Anyway, we come downstairs and this turkey is not just burnt it's collapsed there's nothing there's not even bones it's completely gone so that year what we temperature stayed, did you cook it at? it was in an arga and none of us have an arga so that's probably got something to do with it as well oh my um, goodness. but we just had brussels sprouts and vegetables <laughs> i mean it was a great talking point in the family to be honest and and the following year we lost all power so that was another great christmas um, so, um, so you had cold brussels sprouts <laughs> Yeah, and no running water, actually, which was not too great either. Now, before we launch into our 12 Days of Christmas, we have been running our fundraising Christmas appeal across December. And today, it effectively is Christmas for the Naked Scientists. Yeah, we're celebrating. And so far, our running total is £5,500, which is just over 10% of the way. And that's all thanks to, in no particular order, our top 10 donors this week, who are... Alan Clapp. Peter Westgate. Eugene Pluter. Eric Hollis. Andrew Harmsworth, Paul James, Kenneth Van Clay, Sven Ola Mickelson, Tim Davies, and Robert Hecker. But we still need you guys to buy us some extra eggnog to meet our running costs for 2017. But that would also get us a brand new spanking website. So please do make our Christmas great and head over to nakedscientist.com slash support for details of how you can give us a little bit of money for Christmas via PayPal. Thank you. On the first day of Christmas, my true love sent to me a partridge in a pear tree. And I am absolutely delighted to tell you, we do have a beautiful pear tree, sort of, in the studio. It's actually a bit of lavender with white flowering and some pears plopped into the bottom of the uh, pots, but it will have to suffice for day. Um, I thought we could start by making our own little snowflake decorations here in the studio. So in front of you guys, you should have some paper and some scissors, and we're going to cut them all up, a bit like school, actually, and making, uh, making paper chains. So... Hugh, you're a physicist. Um, how do snowflakes form? Snow is made of water, and water, molecule H2O, has um, an oxygen with two hydrogens. And the angle between the hydrogen uh, um, atoms is about 120 degrees. But it's only approximately 120 degrees. Isn't that right, Alan? Yeah, it's, it's actually about 110 degrees, which is possibly why no two snowflakes look exactly the same. I was going to say, does that matter, the angle? Is that, is that what causes them to be like fingerprints and be completely individual? I think the, the old idea was that it was the hydrogen bond angle that determined the hexagonal shape. But because the hydrogen bond angle doesn't make a hexagon, we've got to think of some other reason why they come out of that shape. <laughs> but you, you can kind of think of it that this um, 120 degree angle, it's like the angle you get in a boomerang. So you can imagine 
Our three boomerangs connect them together, makes this kind of hexagon shape, and that's the the kind of base building block of a, of a, a water crystal. And if if you imagine drawing a snowflake, you might start by drawing uh, three intersecting lines like an asterisk, and then at the end of each line, you might draw another asterisk and then at the end of each of those little lines you can draw another asterisk and at the end of each other line you keep on adding. (laughs) You just keep going forever and ever. And if you ask um, five different people to draw using those instructions you're going to get five different snowflakes because they're going to draw their asterisks at randomly different places. So every snowflake is going to look different. But why do they stop growing? Is there a moment when they stop growing? Well the water the water is coming out of the atmosphere and it's the, they'll only grow when there's water vapor in the atmosphere around the snowflake. And once the snowflake has formed and the air is just a little bit drier around, mm-hmm. um, snowflakes need very particular conditions to grow in. And once those conditions don't exist anymore, they stop growing. Yeah, I suppose it's hoping for a white Christmas this year. What yeah, do you reckon? Well, it's, it's, I think the weather forecast is a bit blustery for Christmas, I think. I haven't actually looked. I don't mm. know. I always want a white Christmas because I always want to go out sleighing. Um, and I remember thinking we did this every year when I was a kid, but actually that never seems to happen anymore. Well, so in Australia, I thought climate change was supposed to be happening. I mean, why yeah, isn't there well, any so snow? Well, you could do what you do in Australia at Christmas time because it doesn't snow then. So we make snow out of mashed potato. How much mashed potato do you need? To no, I'm do just <laughs> I was going to say that must be a colossal amount of uh, amount of potato. So, Amy, you're a psychologist, and I'm wondering whether you can take us through what makes a really good-looking um, snowflake. Because I want to win this competition, <laughs> so I haven't started cutting it actually. So I might start now. Well, I think um, as we've heard about how they grow and crystallize, um, and the hydrogen bonds, uh, they're able to form a sort of hexagonal shape. And hexagons are quite prevalent in nature and symmetricality obviously is something we're quite in tune with as humans. Why are we particularly fond I of... Think, I think it's because um, uh, there's some mathematical reasoning behind um, hexagons, when they fit together, uh, you're using the, you're maximising your area but minimising your parameter. Mm-hmm. So if you have like a, a beehive and you're making honeycomb, it's uh, more energetically favourable for the bees to make uh, hexagonal shapes uh, by reducing their parameter but maximising their area. So. Okay, so I want something as symmetrical as possible, basically. That's what you and should that's, go that's with. how I'm going to be onto a winner. Symmetrical and hexagons, I think that's where you should start <laughs> off from. Yeah, it's okay, a bit then. late for me now. I've already <laughs> should have known that five minutes ago. And um, Alan, very briefly, I've heard that all snowflakes are different, just like a fingerprint. Is this true? Probably. <laughs> um, uh, I think it must have been about 100 years ago, a couple of uh, Canadian scientists collected snowflakes and photographed them, and they published books containing thousands of snowflake photographs, no two of which are alike. Wow, and they had to troll through every single one of them to identify yep. the fact they're right. But wow. then I remember this was an exam question in Crystallography 101, which said the average snowflake is less symmetrical than the average photograph of a snowflake. And I think there may be a lot of selection bias in what actually goes into a photograph of a snowflake. <laughs> OK, I haven't... Mine's not gone very well. I've only actually barely just cut a hexagon, so I don't think... I, oh, wow, that's pretty that's impressive, There's some amazing Amy. results here. <laughs> now, you can listen to the programme as we broadcast live. at 6pm British time on Sundays. The URL is www.nakedscientist.com slash play. Now, we put the photos up on Facebook with all our snowflakes for you to vote. We'll be hearing the results of that later on in the programme. Bye.
the fourth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. You're on The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Greer Jackson. Christmas is all about games, so to celebrate these bird-themed days of Christmas, we're going to play a game called Guess the Bird Call. Have a listen to this. So there were four bird calls there. Who would like to, to open the batting? Who, would, who reckoned they knew at least some of them? Nobody. Oh, Hugh's, Hugh's up for it. Go on, uh, what do well, you reckon? Well, I, just, I didn't hear kookaburra. OK. It's <laughs> a good start, Hugh. Yeah, very good, given it's not an English native. That's, I suppose, oh, you reason. You say they were English natives, did you? Well, we recorded them in the street early. No, really oh, okay. <laughs> James, what do you reckon then? I don't know. I, I thought number four felt a little bit, a little bit pigeony. Um, so maybe James gets a hint of pigeon in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Alan, you, you like eating all these birds, I'm sure. But uh, what, what do you think about? Uh, um, I think the most delicious is probably the robin, which is number one. It's a good mouthful. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not a very big mouthful, though. So, Eleanor, you're the you're the the bird expert. I'll play you each of them in turn again. You can tell us which one. So this was number one. What's that? Well, uh, that's a blackbird. So Alan was wrong. Sorry. He said Robin. So it's a blackbird. More yes. like a hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number two. Eleanor? Uh, so that would be a partridge. Partridges? I didn't get that. Did anyone else re- get that? Partridges normally make a different noise when they're sort of running across the fields near my <laughs> Really? Is that really a partridge? Oh, yeah. Goodness. You just go bang, yum, yum, yum. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number three. What's that? Uh, so that would be a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no one got that one. Okay, here's the last one. Now James's money, he said pigeonish. Pigeonish. Well, uh, my money would be on dove. Don't tell me there's a Christmas theme to this, is there? Uh, maybe. <laughs> so, so that basically, I think pigeon, dove—they're quite similar, though, aren't they? I mean, mm. you can tell them apart though because they do sing differently don't they? Because, uh, you know, I heard a radio programme once and it, uh, it stuck with me forevermore because this person said, pigeons sing with five syllables and doves sing three syllables. Well, I I haven't heard that, but I can tell you that the RSPB says that there's no clear distinction between pigeons and doves. Uh, they're from the same family. And what's more, you know the, uh, the grey flappy things that steal your sandwiches and we call pigeons? They're actually the feral version of wild rock doves. So we call them pigeons, but actually they're really doves. So Because the, the argument this person put forward to me was that doves sing with three syllables and you can think of it as a bit like they said a jaded soccer supporter. United. United. <laughs> and then they said pigeons are five and they say my toes are bleeding. My toes are bleeding. And actually, it does work. I, I've, I've identified many pigeons and doves off the back of that. I guarantee that meme will stick with everyone more. But why do birds do this? I mean, we, we, know, we all take it for granted birds sing, we chat to each other. What, what are they trying to communicate? Well, a whole range of different things. You have um, some of them are defending their territories. Others are telling you how attractive they are. Sometimes they're actually practising their songs. And um, other times they use it for bonding. 
Um, in fact, when they're bonding, like um, birds like budgies actually copy each other, or other ones have particular kind of almost gang calls, which their group has in particular, and other groups don't, unless, like Australian magpies. But aren't, they must be born with a song, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to say, oh, that's a blackbird or, or whatever, because birds do have similar songs within their species, but you're saying, what, they, they learn that from other members of their species, or they're born with it and they adapt it? Yeah, um, so it's it's a bit of um, nature and nurture. So some parts of the song seem to be quite intrinsic, and other parts of the song um, seem to be learnt, or at least need to a little bit of practice before they're they're top notch. Can birds recognise each other from their song? So I, I can tell when one of you is speaking, I can recognise just from the sound of your voice without looking at you who it is. So can a bird do that? Yes. In fact, there was a hilarious experiment done on peafowl in which they got a recording of one particular peafowl and um, played his alarm call again and again and again to his friends. Um, and eventually they stopped uh, reacting to his alarm call. Um, it's almost like the boy calling wolf, yet they'd still react to alarm calls from other individuals. So yes, they can tell each other apart. Most useful. And this whole business of when penguins taking a sort of Christmas card analogy, totally wrong because they're from the wrong part of the planet, of course, South Pole, but they find their young in amongst thousands of other individuals, don't they, when they come back? So how do they do that? Is that from calls or is there a smell or other things? Um, well, I'm not a penguin expert, unfortunately, as much as I'd like to be. Dare you turn up on the <laughs> Christmas edition of the Naked Scientist and not know about penguins. <laughs> but I'd guess call probably be very important to that. And then the drink water. Thanks very much. On the fifth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me five gold rings. Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. Also with us this week, Alan Calvert, who's a physicist. Alan, you've been looking into some famous gold rings in science history. What have you got for us? Right, I think possibly the, the best-known gold rings in physics and medicine were the ones on the hand of Mrs. Röntgen. Um, Wilhelm Röntgen discovered X-rays in 1895 and published an X-ray photograph of his wife's hand um, with apparently one very thick wedding ring on it. Um, I've tried to look up, uh, tried to get a reasonable copy of this photograph, and... I'm rather baffled. I've now come, come across five different images, each of which claims to be Anna Bertha Röntgen's hand with a wedding ring. You must uh, have a lot of hands. <laughs> yeah. Um, the one I think is most likely is actually of a right hand with what appears to be two quite thin rings on it. Um, and this is... I'm, I'm, still, I'm still not entirely convinced. Um, the photograph that is most often appears in textbooks is of a left hand, with a, a wedding ring on the uh, this thick wedding ring on the ring finger, and it appears to be signed and has some sort of provenance. Um, the problem is that the German tradition is not to wear two rings, but to have one ring um, on engagement and on marriage. It's transferred from the left hand to the right hand. Right. So now I'm prepared. I'm pre prepared to believe that the the likely photographs of Anna Bertha Röntgen's hand are actually of a right hand. And I've now found one which is paired with a, a, a photograph of a slightly chubby woman with fairly small hands who seems to have a single thin ring on her right hand. And I believe that's probably the only actual photograph. Do you not think that she was exposed to so many X-rays that she just grew 15 extra hands and that could account for the, the anomaly? No, this was definitely the first X-ray ever published. I, like, I also what? like the way he experimented on his wife and didn't do it on himself. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Obviously a brave physicist. Hugh? Can you actually tell that they're right or left hands with an X-ray? Could be 
flipped upside down on the uh, on the photograph. Well, all the all the radiology textbooks say you always do it from the top downwards. Oh, so there's a, <laughs> some logic. James, I'm wondering, you're a biochemist. I'm just wondering, what gives gold its special properties? Why do we like to wear it as jewellery? Um, yeah, so actually, gold is interesting because it's not interesting at all, really. In terms of like, <laughs> in terms, yes, because in terms of in terms of chemistry, it's actually really unreactive. So, which is why you know it, it it's um, you know we can use it for so many things, and it's actually quite easy to extract compared to other things that we might um, use. Um, but also, that means that it will last a very long time. So, it's a very good kind of measure of wealth, for example. So, if I had a gold bar and I had it for a hundred years, it wouldn't really change. Whereas if I had an iron bar, for example, it would probably get rust on it and then become, you know, which is iron oxide because the, the iron is reacting with the oxygen. So, um, and gold doesn't really do that. So, um, and it's just very malleable. It's very easy to use, but it's also just rare enough so that everybody can have some, but not too much. Amy, can you tell us about the psychology of gold, though? Because there's no doubt about it for, for you know, generations, people have found gold particularly valuable and attractive. So why do people, A, like gold and B, like jewellery, full stop? Oh, there's a few different theories about this. Um, And I think one of the reasons why people like jewellery in general um, is because uh, it can sort of signify uh, things which might be a little bit awkward to communicate with words. Uh, So, for example, a wedding ring, perhaps. It's there, it's a symbol of marriage already. You don't have to say it, it's already there. So that's kind of already like a nice body cue that you don't have to you don't have to tell people um also if you wear a necklace you know you might want to uh, draw attention to specific areas but not want to say it um so for that I've reason i've never thought about, about no, it like that but you're absolutely yeah, it's, right it's That's kind true. of like this underlying subtle signal um thing which is really cool um but then there's also sort of like more anthropological reasons to Jewelry and gold as status, um, monarchy, a sign of wealth, um, and also a sign of love and belonging. If it's something that's bought for you by someone that you love, then you wear it and you feel loved and like you belong somewhere. Wonderful. Wonder what I'm getting for Christmas. Amy, <laughs> thank you very much. On the sixth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me six geese are laying five gold rings. Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. So we're back to uh, birds again, but this time not bird calls, but bird eggs. Now, our producer, Caroline Steele, has put raw and uncooked chicken eggs into some vinegar for a few days. And the results are uh, kind of interesting, to say the least. We've got a couple here. Um, It's changed colour. There's no shell on it anymore. It's kind of squishy, uh, a bit bouncy. I would say naked, Hugh. (laughs) Yeah, well, so the, the vinegar, it's an acid, and the egg shell is made of calcium carbonate. And I remember at school learning that acid plus carbonate gives salt, carbon dioxide and water. And as these eggs were sitting in the vinegar, there there were bubbles of, it must have been carbon dioxide on the outside. Now, all of that carbonate, all of that shell is now gone. And it's, God, it's very squidgy. It is, isn't it? You're squidging it and I'm rather nervous yeah, yeah. you're going well, to break it. So what's left is that membrane. You know when you, when you have a hard-boiled egg and you, sometimes, and you peel the hard-boiled egg, there's this membrane that's between the shell and the egg itself. That's, that's the only thing that's, that's left. holding it together. Rather delicate. What is that membrane for? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a seal. It's a, a 
or an air seal, a, a water seal, because the shell, the calcium carbonate, is, is fairly porous. So without that seal, the egg inside would dry out. Uh, I see then. And before the program, you mentioned to me about this is relevant to climate change and the oceans. Oh, well, and is. I thought, no, because eggs aren't found in the sea. So what, are you, what were you getting at there? Well, so we, th- this shell has dissolved in the acid of vinegar. And we know that the oceans are becoming more acidic because carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere are rising. And so the, the, the acidity of the oceans is rising. And that's making it more difficult for shellfish to create the shells. So one of the real worries for ocean acidification is the um, the, the the threat on, on the marine life, particularly shellfish. Mm, we get things like this. Um, I'm going to pass it around so that everyone can uh, have Don't a feel. Squeeze. Don't break it. Please be careful. It, your hands will smell very vinegary afterwards, I warn you. Um, Eleanor, do we know why birds lay eggs instead of having live young like mammals? Well... That is actually a fantastic question. So, except for lamprey and hagfish, birds are actually the only vertebrate group that don't have any live young. And people don't actually have a definitive answer as to why this is. There's lots and lots of suggestions, um, one of which is um, it might make it difficult to fly, but then again, we have lots of flightless birds. Other people have suggested it might be to do with immune function. Still others have suggested that it might be to do with lung formation um, or the eggshell itself. Um, My personal favourite, however, is um, the idea that actually birds have quite complex caring behaviours. So you will have two parents who will tend to care for the young and the females tend to be adapted to lay one egg at a time. So from the female's perspective, it seems like a good idea to try and get that egg out of you as quickly as possible because then the male can also invest lots of time and energy looking after this offspring rather than the entire burden being on her. You mentioned things that do or don't lay eggs. What about platypuses and echidnas, duckbill platypus, because they lay eggs, don't they? But they're not birds and they're not fish. Yes, they're just strange. We don't talk to them. (laughs) (laughs) Did they they evolve to do that independently? How did they get that skill? I don't know. They're also very odd. They're one of the only poisonous mammally type things, even though we we call them monotremes. They don't really fit neatly into anywhere. uh, I often wonder about about snake eggs. It's a wholly different species than those very similar eggs. Well, yes, snakes, but snakes, they also have instances where they have live young. So unlike birds where you you only have egg laying, you do have some snakes who give birth to live young. But this is proof uh, of which came first, the chicken or the egg. Because um, we know that dinosaurs laid eggs, so therefore the egg came before the chicken. Oh, glad we got that sorted. Um, so do, uh, do birds serenade their eggs? You talked about birds practising their singing, and you, know, you, I often, you often think of them stereotypically in a tree with their nests and their eggs. Is, is there any reason why they might be doing that? Yes. Um, well, in fact, there was an amazing study that's only recently been done that showed that uh, zebra finches, when it's over 26 degrees, they have a particular song which, or a particular call which they make to their eggs. And now what scientists did is they took a group of egg, these eggs. Half of them they played the song to, half of them they didn't. And then they looked and saw what happened when the birds started developing. And what they found was very strange in that those that had been played the call would develop slower and would end up smaller at higher temperatures than those who hadn't been played the call. So the call from the mother caused changes to their physiological development after hatching, which is quite extraordinary. Yeah, I was going to say, that's absolutely um, amazing. Why? Why is it good to do that? Oh, well, they put it down to um, it, 
the smaller size being better adapted to hot environments. So it was easier for the chicks to regulate their heat. And also, interestingly, when these chicks grew up, they found that they were much more successful as smaller adults, producing more babies in higher temperatures than the ones who weren't. Oh, absolutely fascinating. I know, Hugh, you're playing with the egg here and I know you really want to pop it. Great. (laughs) (laughs) So do you want to do the honours and pop it? Let's get a photo of it whilst, uh, and we can put it up on Facebook Live. Well, I used to say the scissors that we've been using to make snowflakes. I feel like you're a bit close to me still. (laughs) They do smell really bad, actually. Oh, yeah, well, okay. Are we ready? Okay, are we ready? Okay. Okay. And pop. Oh, the um, actually, what's interesting is the membrane looks like saggy skin, doesn't it? Around the thing, Hugh, well, I can't believe you're touching it. Why are you well, touching it? Well, so that membrane, it? actually, that membrane is just like the—it's like the skin of a grape, and that you know, it's um, it's just this thin, amazing, isn't it? Yeah, um, keep it away from me. Mm. <laughs> you're on the Naked Scientists. With Greg Jackson and with me, Chris Smith. Today it's our Christmas special and with us is biochemist James Bowers, psychologist Amy Thomas, bird behaviour expert Eleanor Drinkwater, engineer Hugh Hunt and physicist Alan Covered. So far we've actually covered six of the 12 days of Christmas, but now it's time for the seventh. On the seventh day of Christmas my true love sent to me Seven swans are swimming, six geese are laying five gold rings. Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. Now, even at this time of year, when it is absolutely freezing here in Cambridge, it's pretty common to see swans going swimming off down the River Cam. But there are also people who enjoy swimming outdoors at this time of year. So we sent masochist, sorry, producer Caroline Steele to the pool in Tooting, London, to break the ice, almost literally, and take a dip with cold water enthusiast Alex Harper. Uh, you, you can imagine being in a spa and you go in the plunge pool and you get a, a rush from that. Well, this yeah. is exactly the same kind of rush. It's definitely getting cold and getting warm in the sauna and then getting cold again is a, is a huge endorphin release or certainly a high eye buzz. Given that I haven't, I don't think I've actually swum in about six months, what do you think will happen for me? How am I going to feel? We'll, we'll walk in, mm. but it's up to you. You can walk or jump. I suggest walking no, down the steps. <laughs> um, and you will feel, it'll feel cold. It's, it's cold water. There's no getting away from, your skin will cool down. Mildly painful, yeah. but... It's, it is, honestly, it is mental. Mm-hmm. Physically, you'll be fine. Yeah. It's the mental anguish of feeling cold, feeling uncomfortable. OK, so before you hear my reaction, I just want to emphasise that the water was less than four degrees Celsius. Actually, it had frozen over just three days earlier. OK, so excuses over. It's time to jump in. Right, here we go. OK, ready? I mean... I'm as ready as I can pos- possibly physically be. Excellent. So is it, what is your plan to go in first? And then... I'll go in first. You go in, and we go. No hanging around, no interviews. You want to go. Okay, so just get in, go. Off we go! So obviously it was pretty cold. My skin cooled down straight away, and as my blood vessels constricted, I went really pale. But by the second length, my skin went numb, and it became marginally bearable. Excellent. How was it? I mean, I feel like not completely with it. (laughs) (laughs) But I enjoyed it. 
You did it. You finished it. Well done. I enjoyed the second leg. He could, he could have done two more. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm on a beach, it's Good boiling, it's so hot that I actually want to go in the sea. I need to put more sun cream, I'm burning, it's boiling, it's boiling. Okay, so as much as I wanted to believe that, it didn't really help me warm up. So here's cold water enthusiast and doctor Martin Finbar. Well, the dodgy thing is you, you get a warm glow. You often get a feeling of a warm glow after you've been in there, which is deceptive because that's actually going to mean that you lose quite a lot of heat. And so the thing to do is just the, the uh, thing that you have to do with anyone that's a bit cold, that is, put layers on. People sometimes make the mistake when they are really quite cold of going into a hot shower and standing up. That doesn't warm your core quickly enough Mm -hmm. but what it does do is it encourages your blood vessels on the side to dilate and your blood pressure can drop down and so when people faint they faint they can faint from being cold and then having a hot shower the best thing to do is is to just sit quietly and put layers on good advice so eleanor just very briefly birds swans are swimming seem to have no problem tolerating this very cold water how do they do it they have an amazing system called the counter current exchange system in that um their veins and arteries are very very close together those going down to the foot and those going away from the foot so you have this amazing system where the warm blood from the body gets cooled by the blood going in the opposite direction so when the blood gets the foot it's already really cold so the bird doesn't lose that much heat neat so basically by pumping hot blood out of the body and passing it very close to cold blood coming back the cold blood grabs all the heat from the hot blood so by the time it gets the foot it's so cold it's not got much heat to lose so it stays as cold as the foot was without the bird actually losing any energy yes that's exactly right oh it's giving me the shivers just thinking about it so i think we might all need a nice warm Christmassy drink to warm us up on the eighth day of christmas my true love sent to me Eight maids are milking, seven swans are swimming, six geese are laying, five golden rings. Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. So for our eighth day of Christmas, we've got some wonderful milky eggnog for all of us to uh, try. So I'll pour some out um, for everyone to try. James, you're a bit of a... Oh, I smell. I can smell the... Uh, is it brandy? You're a bit of an expert. What's in, what is in eggnog? Uh, so it's made up of, obviously, eggs, lots of eggs, uh, milk or cream and a fair amount of sugar, um, which is often mixed with some rum, bourbon, whiskey um, or other alcoholic. Um, I could definitely smell <laughs> it. Smell I'm going well. to start passing these down. Here, here you go, Hugh. Are you an eggnog fan? <laughs> that sounds promising, James, and for you and Alan as well. Here you go, Chris. Do you Is this homemade, well? Graham? Did you make this? Caroline's made it for oh, us. Here you go, Chris. Okay. One for you. Thank you. How many are we short? Who hasn't got one? Alan, okay, you're on age of one. Um, so it's a bit of a weird concoction then, right? So what's the story? Why... Why does this exist? Well, so apparently, um, you know, we it back in the day, a long, long time ago, so in the, even back to like the 1300s, uh, things like milk and eggs were really kind of sought after because it was only really the rich upper classes that could afford to drink those Presumably things or eat them. Presumably alcohol as well. Um, and alcohol as well. Um, and so there was this drink that was called posset, uh, which kind of was, you know, drunk by the upper classes and then later Doesn't on... Doesn't mean a baby vomiting? Uh, posset? Yeah. <laughs> I actually was thinking of possum, so it's what I was thinking might head completely uh, different. <laughs> um, and eventually, in the 1700s, that kind of got developed into, you know, um, where they would 
adding wine and beer to it. Um, wow. And they think the name Nog comes from, um, there's two different things. There's an, a beer from East Anglia at the time that was called Nog, or Noggin was also the name of a kind of a sort of, gl- like, the cup that we would drink alcohol out with at the time. Um, and I guess somewhere along the line, that ended up um, in America and stuck a little bit more over there than it does here, because uh, mm-hmm. America, they, they tend to drink a lot more eggnog over there at Christmas than I think we do in, mm. in the UK but they kind of held on to it more than we did. What does everyone think? Should we be reintroducing it to our Christmas holidays? Oh, it's lovely. I I've never like had it. it. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like it. Well I've got plenty of extra egg here if anyone likes <laughs> 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 Well, I mean, speaking of raw eggs, I remember my granny always used to tell me, don't eat raw eggs, you know? She never used to lick the bowl, which I was always really disappointed about. Um, so is this sort of thing safe to, to drink? Well, I mean, the, the, the danger with the egg, with raw egg, is salmonella. Hang really. on, you're asking us this question after, <laughs> after we've all I, just licked a mug of it. I haven't had any yet, so uh, I'm feeling... I I'm did notice that. ...waiting. <laughs> Bated breath, basically. And, and so, that the, yeah, the danger with the, the salmonella in the raw egg was, you know, it kind of, even up until the 80s, 90s and, and early 2000s, there was a lot of kind of, um, it was said that even, you know, as much as 1% of all the eggs that we, we had uh, that were tested could potentially contain salmonella, which might not sound like a lot, but that's one in a hundred eggs and that's still quite a lot and quite a high risk mm-hmm. of salmonella. Although these days, so normally, you know, it's much safer to eat kind of pasteurised eggs because that kills off most of the bacteria that would be in there. But um, these days, the Food uh, Safety Agency in the UK is saying that um, it's a lot safer uh, now to be eating raw eggs um, and the percentage, you know, of the possibility of getting salmonella from a raw egg is much lower um, than it used to be even 10 years ago. So, um, yeah, although we do need to be careful, obviously, of salmonella and and things like that. So um, probably best not to (laughs) Chris, with your other hat on, you're a microbiologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital. Do you find you get many cases of salmonella? No, thankfully, the numbers are extremely low these days. Back in the 80s, when people were worried about salmonella in eggs, there were thousands of cases. But uh, that that's because, um, and the number has come right down, because there is now a good vaccine which is administered to farmed chickens and it stops them having salmonella. There is another bug they can carry called Campylobacter, but that's something quite different. But the number of salmonella cases is now vanishingly rare, so we can actually assume that, that raw eggs are probably absolutely fine now. The risk is extremely low. Does this, where does this word salmonella come from? It sounds like it originally came from fish. It does, doesn't it? And I don't know what the origin of it is. I know who Typhoid Mary was, though, and I wouldn't want to make friends with her. <laughs> well, as you guys tuck in after that excellent bit of science, we'll uh, move on to our next uh, day of Christmas. On the ninth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me. Nine ladies dancing, eight maids are milking, seven swans are swimming, six geese are laying, five gold rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. So, Amy, nine ladies are dancing. You're our resident psychologist. There must be a huge sort of psychology of dance. It's used in so many different ways. Why do we dance? Well, there's a few there's a few theories about this. Um, one of the main ones is that dancing is is a is a mate selection 
gesture. There's been uh, studies done on looking at the relationship between the symmetricality of one's body and their ability to dance. And what they found is that people with symmetrical bodies are better dancers, um, quite substantially. Why? Um, I think it's because the way you balance and you can move, um, you're more flexible and it looks more aesthetically pleasing when your body is symmetrical. You know, if you've got if your hands are exactly the same size, if your legs are exactly the same size, it's going to look better. Are you going to show me what I need to do better then in order to impress this Christmas? Yes, so uh, I've got a little experiment to do to show you uh, how to improve your dance skills. What have you got in mind? Uh, I'm going to give you... I'm going to stand up and do one dance, uh, which is a bad, unattractive dance. Okay. <laughs> and then I'm going to do one dance, which is an attractive dance. And okay. you're going to tell me which one's which, hopefully. Now, now, I happen to know that Hugh Hunt is a very good human beatbox, so we're going to get him to do <laughs> the musical accompaniment for you, Amy. So if you'd like to take to the dance floor, which is this patch of carpet behind, this, behind my chair. Uh, so we're not going to know what order these dances are coming in. It could be the unattractive or the attractive one. So can we just cue the music, please, Hugh, if you could kick us off with a little bit of kind of a rhythm for it a bit more invigorating than that good okay Hugh's in tune and Amy's taking to the dance floor and okay we've got a bit of hip swaying action happening the arms are outstretched okay like a sort of Jesus Christ posture with fingers kind of extended and a bit of palms out so I'm seeing palms being presented to me and she's looking straight out across the sort of surveying the vista okay is that dance one okay we need a different tune for dance two okay so Okay, this is a very vigorous dance. Uh, there's a lot of shoulder action happening here and um, sort of twisting of hips, arms and sort of moving around. It's not symmetrical. And... Okay, thank you very much. Very hard for you at home to picture what Amy was doing in dance two, I think. Um, it was quite hard for me to picture what Amy was doing in dance two. Alan, what was your observation? Well, Amy Which... was wearing a full-length chiffon napkin. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliantly decorated with 40,000 sequins, so not by her mother. A nod to the good old days of sexist British television. Um, what, what did everyone think then? What, what did we think about the attractiveness of the two dances? Greer, what, what was your instinct well, telling the, you? The first one was definitely more controlled, I would say, and the second one was a bit more sort of loose, wasn't it? And you were smiling much more in it, which makes it kind of more attractive to me because you're laughing, you're smiling. So your, your money's on number two? I'm going to go for number two. Hugh? Well, so arms higher up above the shoulders as opposed to arms lower down. So the second one had more arms up than arms down. James, your your thoughts? Well, your, the judging on that side of the yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's, it's weird because the first one was a lot more symmetrical, but it just felt a lot more robotic. And so, like, you know, there's something about... Um, is we would just say that symmetry is very kind of attractive, but at the same time, it didn't feel like I was enjoying it as much. Like, you know, it's not... <laughs> So, Amy, put us out of our misery. Uh, of the two dances, which one was ostensibly the attractive dance and what are the sort of go-to points for people to bear in mind on the dance floor this Christmas <laughs> at the office party? So, I can safely say that you guys were correct. The second one was supposed to be the attractive dance and I'm happy that that worked. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because they have actually pinpointed it to specific movements in the body. Um, there was an experiment done a few years ago looking at particular movements of the body and, and they rated the attractiveness of the dance um, and these were um, variation around the central region of your body so if you're moving you know doing isolations with your rib cage that kind of thing um, quicker foot pace as well so you notice in the second one I was speeding my feet up you so didn't that... have to compete with the music a bit but... yeah I know I know it's hard it was hard it's well under the circumstances yeah, right no, so it's... we've got to, you've got to have movement around the rib cage move your move your limbs feet, feet quicker feet, quickly feet um, hands hands 
what you want to do is get like variation in your dance moves. So as as James said about the first one being uh, a bit symmetrical, a bit boring, that actually has been scientifically proven in that you have to have variation in your dancing, otherwise it's not attractive and it's boring. It's The Naked Scientists with me, Greer Jackson, and Chris Smith. And today, the 12 science days of Christmas. Now that we've had some strenuous dancing, it's made me a tad nervous about 10 laws of leaping. How are your quads, Chris? Well, they're not quite as good as your singing. Mm, best get down the gym then. I reckon that's going to be my New Year's resolution, actually. <laughs> Let's uh, get singing then. On the 10th day of Christmas, my true love sent to me. Ten lawns are leaping, nine ladies dancing, eight maids are milking, seven swans are swimming, six geese are laying, five gold rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. So we're up to our 10th day of Christmas and our lords are leaping are actually going to be bouncy balls today. Engineer Hugh Hunt is an expert on how things bounce and roll. It seems like an interesting profession choice, Hugh. Well, I don't actually do much uh, bouncing of balls, but I do lots of stuff with spinning things. What are we going to be doing today? Well, uh, we're here in this uh, studio. We're getting down onto our hands and knees onto the floor. So this is uh, in the dedication, in the name of science. It's a lot of dedication. Okay. And I've got various balls here, bouncy balls and snooker balls and billiard balls and footballs and ping pong balls. But what I want to do is to take one of these balls and roll it towards a wall. Just roll it along the floor, just as you, uh, as you might like a, a, a snooker ball might roll along the, the table. And it's going to hit the wall. And you might think it might just bounce back ordinarily. But what it does is it leaps up into the air and then um, lands a, a little way away from the wall. It just, just doesn't just roll back. Now, you can, you can do the experiment. I'm rolling the ball now. And you can hear it bounces twice. It hit, there's one bounce where it hits the wall and another bounce where it hits the floor. You hear boom, boom. Here we go. Yeah, pretty, it's pretty subtle. They're very close together, aren't they? More. Let's do it again. So you hear boom, boom. Okay, and, and that's because it's rolling a little bit up the wall, yeah, banging so, the wall and then so bouncing So when the ball is, hits the wall, because the ball is rolling... For a very, very short time, it sticks to the wall and rolls up the wall and then becomes airborne, bounces back and then lands just a short way away from the wall. Now, this kind of rolling and spinning stuff, well, isn't all that important, except in the 2010 um, Football World Cup, there was a famous incident in the England-Germany game, Frank Lampard's disallowed goal. And I can hear lots of people listening to this show jumping out of their seats in indignation that the goal was not awarded. But what happened, though? What happened for it? I, did, I have to admit, I don't, I don't, I don't watch football. It's not my, my deal. Well, the, the ball uh, came in towards the goal. It hit the crossbar and then it went down onto the grass across the goal line. But then it bounced back up again, hit the crossbar again, and came out. And um, because the, the ball just came out all of its own accord, the, the goal was not allowed. But it was the spinning of the ball that caused the ball to hit the ground and come back out again. So understanding how things spin and what happens about spinning things turned out to be pretty important in that game of football. In your scientific opinion, should it have been allowed? Well, yes, it should have been allowed. Um, <laughs> and um, 
You know, but I, I guess I would like to think that um, referees in football uh, should know all about conservation of angular momentum and the laws of physics and, and would have been able to, to make that deduction for themselves on the field of play. Other than football, though, where is this? Where are you studying this and, you, and using this sort of spinning science? Well, I think um, once you get outside of the Earth and you go into space, if you think of the, the Philae lander, that landed on the comet um, last year and the, um, the New Horizons spacecraft that went out to Pluto. If you try and think about how, how do they turn themselves around so that the, the legs of the spacecraft are pointing in the right direction to land or that the camera is pointing in the right direction or the antenna is pointing in the right direction. And it's all about understanding the angular motion of spacecraft. And if you've ever watched these movies um, like uh, Martian or Interstellar, and you can see what goes goes wrong when, when spacecraft are spinning out of control. And if you think of a, a balloon, you blow it up and then you let go of it and it randomly flies around the room. Well, that's because it's spinning out of control. So really important to, to get control of spin and understand spin in space. And uh, I have to say, I've just heard from Ed Wilson on Twitter, at Naked Scientist, who says the name of Salmonella, Hugh, is a bit boring. It actually comes from the US veterinary surgeon Daniel E. Salmon, 1850 to 1914, who isolated this type of bacterium in 1885. So there you go. Now, we finally come to the end almost because we're up to 11 pipers piping and 12 drummers drumming. Physicist Alan Calvert is also a musician and he's kindly agreed to accompany us on his tuba, which he's brought here into the studio. But before we actually play us out, Alan, how does the tuba actually work? How does an instrument like that make a sound? You have to start off by, by making what's uh, it's called a, a buzz. Basically, you blow a raspberry into a funnel. <laughs> Or <laughs> depending on whether you're, which which level of brass instrument you're playing, and then that contains a whole lot of tones, and you select the resonant length of tubing by pressing the valves up and down. Why do the valves actually change the notes though? Why should the length of the tube affect what comes out? What you're trying to do is to produce a standing wave within within the tube. Um, now the end of the tube being open means that there's got to be an antinode at the bell. And there's going to be a node where your lips are, because the air is not moving at that point. What's an antinode? Antinode is where the air is moving um, at its most rapid, and the node is where the air is not moving. And imagine the tube is stretched out. You'd have something about like, like about 15 feet of, of tubing. Um, you can draw lots of sine waves within that wiggly 15 waves feet, along it. Wiggly yeah. waves along it, and provided they all start at zero, an end of maximum, then you can have waves of various different frequencies all fit in the tube. Would it have to be all curled up like the tuber is, or could you get the same tune out of a long straight piece of pipe? It's just that we coil it up for convenience because it would be hard to move otherwise. It's very difficult to march with a 15-foot drain pipe. Yeah. Um, Also, it, it upsets the other guys in the orchestra. (laughs) <laughs> Fair enough. And why are these instruments made of brass? Is there a reason why they go for brass? Or, or could you make it out of anything? In principle, you could. You can, you can play a hosepipe if you've got a decent mouthpiece. I've seen people do that with a funnel on the end. Yeah, and, you can, and by swinging the hosepipe in a sort of like, almost like you're going to do a lasso, you get a range of different sounds out. Very yes. interesting. It's quite interesting. You get quite a harsh tone out of a, out of a hosepipe, very similar to a trombone. Because it's the same What are you saying about down. trombonists? They won't be very happy to hear that. <laughs> oh, trombonists are always happy because they always get to play the loud bits. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, it's because the, the trombone is essentially the same diameter all the way down the tube. 
that means you can get a whole lot of harmonics and overtones, and you get this good rasping sound if you really blow it hard. But the reason for brass? The reason for brass is it's... It's very. It, it's it's an easy material to work. It's ductile. It's malleable. So you can you can beat the shape of the bell that you want. Uh, you can draw tubes of any size and length. You can solder it quite easily. Um, it it doesn't corrode. And most important of all, from my point of view, it's a biocide. There's so much copper in brass that bugs don't grow on it. And that's quite important because you don't want to catch tuberculosis. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, are you saying then that that actually this is this is a useful aspect to the instrument because you're blowing all that moisture and warm air in there and a whole bunch of bugs from your mouth presumably these instruments do end up riddled with bacteria the first thing they tell you when a joint when you join a brass band is never breathe in (laughs) (laughs) and and what about the difference between the brass section and and other parts of of, say woodwind do they work is it pretty much the same physics or is there a difference there slightly different physics um the, the the real difference is in the way that the first edge tone is generated. Instead of blowing raspberries, woodwind either use a, a reed or an edge like a whistle, um, which is a, the recorder and the flute have an edge, and everything else uses a reed. But the question is really whether a saxophone is, is brass or reed. What do you think? I think it's, it's interesting. It's, it's almost entirely in a class by itself because of all the instruments. It's the one that sounds most like the human voice. I can go along with that. Alan, we'll give you a couple of seconds to get yourself in position because Alan is going to play us out. And in the meantime, I have to say a very big thank you to our panel this week who are Amy Thomas, James Bowers, Hugh Hunt and Eleanor Drinkwater. The producer, thank you, was Caroline Steele. Now, we did ask you to vote for the best snowflake, and I'm very surprised and pleased to announce that I'm the winner. And have you seen my snowflake? It's a fix. <laughs> well, you, Caroline's a, told me. I didn't even cuss it. You should, honestly, um, Eleanor, describe Greya's snowflake. Um, I would describe it as round. Or? A piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> on one vote, down to someone called Alan on Facebook. Thank you, Alan. I'm very proud to uh, take my prize. Next week, Greer will be asking, is there anybody out there and are we alone in the universe? Effectively, we're pondering one of the fundamental questions of humanity, from flying saucers and UFOs to why we haven't found any evidence yet and what it would mean to find E.T. So we'll look forward to that. In the meantime, don't forget to head to nakedscientist.com slash support to buy us an eggnog for this Christmas. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. From me and from everyone here at The Naked Scientist, a very Merry Christmas. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.